We, uh, it was a, a privilege for me this week to be able to drive Charles Price back and forth from Woodstock. And uh, we were able to go and speak to Sim in the hospital on Wednesday. And uh, we could both sense the, I don't know if this is the right word, but sort of a frustration on Sim's part because he wants so badly to be here. Uh, Charles said something that um, I might have thought of saying, but I'm not sure that I would have said. He says, Sim, don't forget, you're not indispensable. So on that note, the elders have spoken, and I have offered to step in and fill in for Sim until such time he's able to be back. I think we need a sense of continuity. I know some of you might be disappointed, but this is the best you got right now. And uh, we continue to pray for Sim that he will recover. And you know, when you go through these things, as some of you have, these are the times that you come to really know God. When we're on the mountaintops, everything's fine. We don't seem to come to know God the same way as we do as when we're in difficult times. So God has a purpose in this. I'm certain of it. Because there'll be lessons that Sim will gain through this time that are, will be very necessary when he recovers for the days ahead. You begin to see life differently when you're faced with what he's facing right now. So to get on with the message from this morning, Let me, let me begin with this. On Wednesday night, I, at, at the close of the session with Charles, I spoke to the young people. And I'm not going to define how old you have to be to be still young. Because in talking with Charles, um, we found out we were six weeks apart in ages. But I said to you, I said, if you want to have what Charles has, you'll need to begin when you're young. And I remember when I was young, people telling me the same thing and giving me advice I should memorize scripture, etc., etc., etc. And I was terrible at memorizing scripture. I just still struggle with that one. But it is true. And you need to begin... And think of it in a sense of a long process. Now, we don't know how much more time we have here. We have no idea how long it will be before the Lord comes. But begin doing that at least. Now, I also remember as a teenager, and many of you might have been like this in school, and the teacher would say, or the guidance teacher, whoever it was, would say, what are you going to do with your life? Now, they're wanting you to make a decision whether I'm going to be a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, a laborer. And I'm thinking, how do I know? I don't know. I'm only 16, 17 years old. But you know, the decisions that you make in life 
will affect how you end your life. It's true. If you devote yourself to study and you begin to have a job that lasts you for a lifetime, which is very rare these days, you have to keep changing jobs anymore. Long gone are the days where you work for a company for 50 years. So there's something there that you have a decision to make when you're young and it affects your lifetime. But I have a question for you. Is it possible that we have decisions to make here now in our mortal condition that will affect our life when we have immortal bodies? When Jesus comes to reign, is it possible that the way we live our lives now will affect a future day when we're no longer in these mortal bodies? That's kind of the underlying message that I'd like to give you today. And we're going to have a look at the letter that Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea which when we read it, I would think most would agree that this is very much marks the church in general in the days in which we are. On that note, when I was away, I visited a couple that I hadn't seen in quite a number of years, probably 15 years, I would think, at least. And they come from a small village. And we got talking about the condition of the church and what they were seeing. And they said, you know, just in our small village, in the surrounding area, there's been one mainline denomination that just recently has closed eight churches. As I drove through the countryside, I saw numerous country churches that were closed and for sale. Some that had been repurposed. That in itself gives us an indication of where we are when it comes to the church at large. Now we have pockets where there's life, and I would like to think that that is the case here, but I think we also need to have a warning, and that's why we'll have a look at the letter to the church in Laodicea. And when John begins to write the book of Revelation, And he sees Jesus in a way that he had never seen him before. You can read it in chapter 1, where his eyes are like a flame of fire, etc., and his hair is white as wool. He sees Jesus in a way that he had never known him, because what he was seeing was the appearance of Christ coming to judge the world. And John was to take notes. John was to write this to the seven churches. So he begins in Revelation chapter 1 as an introduction to what I'm going to say this morning. Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies of everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. We'll jump down to verse 17, and this is after John has the appearance of Jesus. He had heard a voice behind him, and he turned around to see the voice, and he saw this image of Jesus coming as the one to judge the world. And he says, when I, John, saw him, that is Jesus Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. What a wonderful introduction because of the things that John was going to see that God was going to reveal to him about the last days. To be reminded, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Fear not, John. Whatever you see, remember, don't fear. Some of us get fearful if we begin to read Bible prophecy and we have to look face to face with events that may and not may will transpire in the world. But the Lord says, don't fear, John. I am. He's the great I am. He's the one that has met the needs of every single one here that has put their faith and trust in Christ. Everything that you need in this world, he has provided for you. So we're just going to read through Revelation 3 in the section re that uh, refers to Laodicea. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, White garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I, have over, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me just go back to the beginning of this. <clears throat> If you do any study at all, you will 
notice that the letter to the seven churches all begins very similarly. The similarity is that Jesus reveals himself in a special way to each church. And the reason for that is so that whatever the problem is in the church, whatever they're facing, however they do not come to the mark that, is, that should be the standard to live by, Jesus reveals himself to say, look at me. That is going to be the correction for whatever condition of the church is in by looking to Christ. They all begin with, to the angel of the church. And that word angel is simply messenger. If you were to go to Strong's Concordance, you would find that Strong's makes mention of this as by inference is the pastor. Well, that may be the case, but I think it narrows it down too much. Because there are others within the church that God uses to be messengers. So, for instance, in Antioch, in the church at Antioch, it says there were teachers and prophets. It doesn't say there were pastors. It doesn't mean there weren't pastors. But predominantly, they had prophets and teachers in Antioch. But these letters that Jesus is writing to the churches, while he's looking at the condition of the church in that locality, He's writing this specifically to the messenger of that church. Whether you realize it or not, those that take a place in leadership, God holds responsible. It's an awesome position to be in. Because that means that the one that is the messenger must convey the message that God has given, whether it's palatable or not. We must be faithful to what God gives us and faithful to the Word of God. Not to twist it, not to try and apply it in a way that it shouldn't be, but be faithful to the Word of God. So he's saying to this angel, now this is one particular church in which it becomes quite possible who that messenger was. You see, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, and you'll find when he writes there, he says, when you've finished reading this, hand this off to the church at Laodicea. And likewise, the letter to them, you read the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, which we don't evidently have a copy of. So I'm going to read you just the last few verses of Colossians. He says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Nymphus who is a person, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause it that it be read also in the church Laodicea, that they also may read the epistle from Laodicea, and you also read the epistle from the Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you fulfill it. Archippus, quite likely then, was the messenger that uh, Jesus is referring to here in chapter 3 of Revelation. And he's holding Archippus accountable for the ministry that he has received, that he fulfilled that ministry. So he goes on 
to say this, these things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is wanting them to know in this church who he is. The word amen here can be translated and normally is translated the words of Jesus when he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, verily, verily, this is his name. I am the amen. And he wants them in this church to know that he is the amen. He's faithful. That is, he's trustworthy. He has a message to give to them that's trustworthy. Now sit up and pay attention, he says. This is a trustworthy statement I'm giving to you. And I am the true witness. That is, he's truthful. Everything that he's saying here to the church in Laodicea is truthful. Nothing is distorted. And he sees things in a way that those in the church in Laodicea do not even see themselves. He's the beginning of the creation of God. That is, he's the originator of life. So he says, let's get this straight here. I'm writing a letter to you. And I'm coming to you and I'm, I have a word for you that is trustworthy, it's faithful. And it's coming from the very one that was the originator of your life. Now sit up and listen. I wonder and have often wondered what would it be like if we as a church received a letter from Jesus and we heard and understood how he feels about this church. I was listening to a very prominent preacher not long ago I'm not criticizing, but in it he said, you know, this church is different. We're like the church in Philadelphia, where the Lord had nothing to say against them. And I thought, oh dear, oh, don't go there. What's Jesus say about that church? We have to be faced with the reality. How does Jesus see us? This particular letter is given as a warning. Jesus says, first of all, I know. Jesus knows each and every one of us and he knows exactly where we are in our spiritual journey. He knows all of our failures. He knows our potential. He knows where he would like to see us in our walk. He would like to see us useful in his work. And maybe we're just too lackadaisical. And it's not serious. This is the case that happened here. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. Those that are cold can be sitting in church pews, but they've never been touched with the gospel. You see, Jesus said before he left, he spoke a parable about the, <clears throat> the wheat and the tares. And after hearing it, the disciples said, well, should we take up the tares and take them out of it? And he says, no, no, they both grow together. He'll deal with it at the end. 
Every church that I've attended, which is quite a number, there's been problems in every one of them. Maybe they didn't have any problem before I came. But they had a problem. We all have a problem. Sometimes we don't realize that we have wheat and tares. There are those that may be sitting here this morning that still have not given their life and their heart to Jesus. It's quite possible. But this morning I want to speak to those of you that are believers. Because we ourselves are needing to be challenged. Are we cold? Have we become indifferent? Are we cold? Because evil is on the ascendancy. Evil in the world is at a level now that I've never seen in my lifetime. But because evil increases the love of the many have grown cold. Is this the problem throughout the church at large? If it is, we're looking horizontally to the world instead of vertically to Christ. We're seeing what's going on in the world and we can become overly occupied with what's going on in the world and lose sight of Christ. We must keep focused on Christ in the days in which we are. But if we're hot, we have a certain zeal. There's something that just gives us such a zeal and a necessity to go forward and push forward in the things of God and to reach people with Christ. But here we have a church that's neither neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. They've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church. The priority of those two is the pleasures of the world. We all have to work. I know that. And what I'm seeing is prevalent now in this day that I went through 30 years ago in business. One of the greatest things that Satan uses to try and take us off course is to keep us busy. And you all know what that's about. Talk to lots of you. When I was busy, I was working 16 hours a day, six days a week, so I know what I'm talking about. I had no time to read. I had no time to pray. In fact, during that time, because of conditions in churches that we attended, I became so discouraged, I gave up. Couldn't read my Bible for two years. Didn't mean to say that I didn't talk to the Lord, but I, I was washed up. And some of you can get to that position. As a result, you're neither hot nor cold. And the Lord is saying, let's wake up. Don't be like that. That's not what I'm looking for. I wish that you were either hot nor cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, it's the most detestable thing. At least you can have a hot cup of tea or a cold drink of water. But something that's in between, it's not as palatable. But what he's saying is, the reason for all this is because you say that I'm rich. There are many churches in the Western world that fit this picture. There are many of them that are very rich. I mean in finances and wealth. 
And as a result, they don't need God. We've got our programs. We can do whatever we want. Money's no object. We can have parties. We can do whatever. But their hearts are not really there to be following and hearing from God and hearing from the Holy Spirit and adjusting their lives to what Scripture is saying, what Scripture is being revealed to them. We constantly, no matter how long we've been on the road, and me in particular, we constantly need to adjust to what the Word of God says. I'm still finding things that I thought, I've read that for years, never really dawned on me. Then I have to adjust to what it says. That's not easy. <laughs> the older you get. You see, we can have everything all, every T crossed and every I dotted. Because we think we know this particular doctrine or that particular viewpoint. And that's where I line up. And we become so rigid that what ends up is we're neither hot nor cold. But he says, you have need. And they say they have need of nothing. But do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And as I was beginning to look at this, I said to Charles one day, I said, this is uncanny. Because you began with blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall the kingdom of God. What's, what's, the, what's it say, Steve? Inherit the kingdom of God. Thank you. They didn't see their own need. This was the condition of the church here in Laodicea. Everything was going on fine. They had come to a point that they didn't really need to have direction from God. They were doing just fine on, the, on their own. But he says, you don't realize that you're wretched. You're miserable. You're pure, blind, and naked. This is not a challenge just to you. This is a challenge to me. I've known what it's like to be in this condition. I pray to God that I never see that again. It's not a pleasant place to be in. Because you think that you're okay. Only to find out that you're not. When the rubber meets the road you find out that what you thought you had in a relationship and communion with God wasn't what it ought to be. And you had actually drifted gradually and adapted to the world. And exactly the same thing has happened within the church. The world has gradually drifted into the church over the past 50 years, contributing to this condition. But the Lord says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. How is it if you're poor that you're going to be able to buy? There's a verse in Isaiah 55 that says, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. It's all free. There's nothing we have to do. 
Gold represents the sovereignty of God. It represents the righteousness of God. And it's freely given to us. And he says, if you only could see your condition, if you would just come to me and ask, I'd give it to you. I've got gold here that's priceless. Today, it's priceless. They try and keep the cost of it down. Which, by the way, gold refers to righteousness. Silver is redemption. If any of you happen to follow precious metals at all, you'll find that the price has been manipulated for year upon year upon year. Why? It's an attack against the righteousness of God and His redemption. It's the gospel message. It's prevalent in the world. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear the message of redemption. But the Lord here says, come, buy some gold from me that's gone through the fire. Whether you realize it or not, and I hope that we do, this is not based on anything we've done or haven't done, but sin is going through fire. It's being refined. I've gone through fire at times. Some of you have gone through the fire. Are you mad at God because of it? No. No, Flory, we're thankful to God that he put us through the fire. We would not have that communion and relationship with God apart from having gone through that. And that's why Paul says, I've learned in every circumstance, whatever it is, to be content. Because he finds that in that circumstance, Christ is everything we need. When you get down so far, the only place you can look is up. And sometimes we need to hit the bottom before we, uh, we look at Christ. He's the answer. He's always been the answer. I got myself in a big tizzy because I wasn't looking up. White garments, again, this has a reference to righteousness. In the book of Revelation, it says the white garment... White garments are the righteousnesses of the saints. We've come to salvation. God has imparted to us and declared us to be righteous. But are we living in the good of that? Or do we not even think about it? That helps us in making decisions in life. When we see that God has made us righteous, then we do what is right. When we're faced with a decision, it's easy to make the decision based on righteousness because it's, it's black or white. And you know which direction to go in. So instead of being poor, miserable, blind, and naked, you need some white garments so that the shame of your nakedness may, be, may not be revealed. Here we are. He says, you're walking around naked. And you didn't even know it. But you know, there's one good thing about nakedness. And I've mentioned this to some of you. I think I have to Randy for sure and Aaron. I think it's Hebrews chapter 12. But the writer of the Hebrews says, No chastening at the time is one of pleasure, 
but afterwards it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who are exercised by it. And a number of years ago, I was asked to speak, and this is the section of scripture I was looking at, so I was doing my study on it, and I looked up the Greek words for those verses. And I looked up the word, the Greek word for... Um, oh. <laughs> I said to Charles, these senior moments. Um, but afterwards yields the peace to those who are exercised. It was the word exercised. And if you looked up Strong's Concordance before, you'll see a number at the end of that word. So I went to the back of my concordance and I looked up the word and the Greek word meant naked. And I thought, what? I must have the wrong number. I flipped back to Hebrews again and looked, exercise, and it was a number. I looked back, that's it. I thought, it must be a misprint. This doesn't make any sense. Those who benefit by going through the chastening of the Lord, what's naked got anything to do with it? Then I realized after 10 or 15 minutes, you see, everything is naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees what you're going through. We're all going through something. There's lessons to be learned. There's correction that has to come in. And he does it because he loves us. But we have to be available to let everything go about ourselves, lay ourselves bare before God and say, God, what are you teaching me through this? And those that gain by that actually bear fruit to God. I think, what a hard way to go through to learn that lesson. But that's the way in which God works. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might see. This probably has reference to the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that enlightens our eyes to be able to, to understand as we read the scriptures. So he's saying your condition being miserable and naked and all of these things, you need to be able to see with the eyesight of the Holy Spirit. Begin to read the scriptures. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you need to understand when you read it. You don't have to read chapter after chapter after chapter. Many of you don't have time to do that. Read a couple of verses. Look at it. Meditate on it. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what he wants for you in that. That's eyesight on your eyes. Now you have a clearer eyesight to be able to see where you are and decisions that have been so difficult to make. He gives you eyesight to be able to see that. So that's what we would have with the eyesight. And he reminds them, even although this is their condition, as many as I love, as many as I love, let that sink in. As many as I love. This takes me to a time I was driving up north of St. Jacob's. I was heading home. I had nothing in particular on my mind, but I remember the exact place on the road 
when my mind went to the time that we lived in Scotland and things did not go well, it was difficult. I was working for my father-in-law. And it must have momentarily come into my mind. Just thinking, father-in-law, I'd gotten along so well with him. Things had become so difficult. All he could do was criticize. And it just suddenly flooded my mind when God intervened. He says, yes, but Dave, I love you. I'll never forget it. Have you ever had God say, I love you? Do you know how much he loves you? You say, yes, he gave Jesus for me. But do you really, really, really understand how much he loves you? He loves you so much, he's prepared to rebuke you and to chasten you. And when he does, he says, repent. Restore that relationship with me. God loves you so much, he will go to whatever ends that he needs to take to bring you back to himself. And at the end of that, you realize what the grace of God is. I began to realize through those experiences, God's grace. I messed up so many times. And you think, well, I'm washed up. There's no second or third or fourth chances. I'm probably on my fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. I shouldn't be standing here. It's God's grace. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This is a picture of the day in which we are. If you follow anything to do with the religious community and the Christian faith, Jesus has been programmed out. And this is the condition of the church. Jesus says, I'm standing outside the door. Does it break your heart? Have you ever attended a church where they don't even read the scriptures? Have you attended a church where they never say the name of Jesus? I have. It's becoming more prevalent all the time. And the condition of the church is like this of Laodicea. They're neither cold nor hot. But here's the promise. He's not looking for this whole church to come back. He's looking for you. He's looking for each of us individually. And the call is to each of us as an individual. If anyone... He says, is there anyone in there that will open the door? Is there anyone? And I visualized this in my apartment. The door that enters my apartment is here. I'm in a chair at the opposite end. I can see right through to my door. Got an L-shaped living room, dining room. And I visualized this, Jesus coming, knocking on my door. I'm sitting quite comfortable in my chair. I don't want to get up. 
He says, I'm knocking at the door. And this is, he continues and continues and continues. It's not intermittent. He keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. If anyone will come and open the door, i got a promise for you. I'll come in and I'll have lunch with you. I'll have dinner with you. Do we realize how real the Christian life is? He says, if you open the door, I'll come in and I'm going to have dinner with you. Imagine Jesus himself coming in and talking to you one-on-one. That's exactly what he wants for every one of us. It's an intimate relationship with him. He wants to communicate with us. So he says, if there's anybody, just open the door. And all I do is open my door a little bit, and he comes in and spend time with him. I was privileged to be able to spend a lot of time with Charles this week. So there's just a little bit of an idea of what it's like. All right, we go back a number of years. There's things that we have in common, things that we can discuss together, scriptures we can discuss together. That's what it's like. Jesus, for each and every one of you, individually, wants to come in and spend time with you. Where's our problem? Our problem is we don't give him the time. When we don't give him the time, we so readily and easily become lukewarm. May we be challenged today that that not be our life. But he says, and this is the message to those who overcome. It's tough. It is tough to overcome. If you're sitting in the midst of people that have no interest in the things of God, you're not getting the feedback from others that are on alive and on fire for God. It's difficult to live in that situation. We have to overcome. And we overcome by turning to Christ, learning from Him, listening to Him from day to day. He becomes our life. He is our life. I will grant to that one to sit with me on my throne as I have overcome and have sat with my Father on his throne. We do not sit on the throne that Jesus sits on with his Father. But those that overcome, hmm, that's those that have made a decision in this life to follow Jesus, to devote their lives to Christ, and to the work of the ministry. And that doesn't mean to say you're standing on a platform. Those on a platform have more responsibility before God. But here you are. You can overcome. You can sit with him on his throne. What throne is that? Is he on the throne now? He is. Sitting with the Father on his throne. But what's Jesus' throne? The book of Daniel tells us the final kingdom will have no end. Jesus will have his own kingdom ruling in righteousness. And if we, 
in this life overcome and we are devoted to him and we're alive in Christ and reaching a lost world, he promises us we can sit and reign with him when he reigns. Isn't that amazing? Is it worth it? It's not everyone that's going to sit with him on his throne. It's not everyone that's going to reign. Those who suffer with him shall reign with him. That's a challenge to me. Have I suffered for the name of Christ? There are many believers in the world that have suffered and are facing physical persecution. But those who suffer with him will reign with him. But if we overcome this lukewarm situation that we find ourselves in in these days, we have the promise that we will reign with him. And this, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it says to the churches, not to just the letter that he wrote to Laodicea. There were six other letters. What we find today is a mixture throughout Christendom of those that belong to those other six churches as well. And we need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This may not be what is prevalent in this church that we're lukewarm. But there will be somewhere else we will fit in to the letters of the six, seven churches. Be somewhere. And then bring it down to the individual, me. Now in our day, God blesses us if we will but overcome in the situation that we're in. I trust that that's a challenge. It's a challenge to me. And I think if we were to adjust and realize that we need to be more, how do I, I don't want to make it impossible, but more committed to what God wants us to do, we'll find that we'll not only be blessed there, but we're going to be blessed here too. What a thrill it is to see others around that are growing in the Lord, those that are coming to salvation. We have all that as well. And at the end of the day, we can sing as we close, great is thy faithful.